Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. If we're putting like a Venn diagram together of all of the circles that make you Sam Ogden, how would you describe that? Chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems a bit orderly though. Okay. That's, I think that's why I study astrology, honestly, because <laughs> uh, it helps to bring kind of order to so many different things. Um, I have a lot of different hobbies, interests, um, have varied work experience. Um, I guess uh, just looking at the past 10 years, uh, I'm 30 and I just, just started my uh, bachelor's degree. And I'm doing classical studies at Bard College in upstate New York. Um, so I have an interest in ancient history, ancient languages, languages in general. Uh, but I also have a passion for working with the earth, uh, natural building, building with raw earth products, wood, clay, straw, sandstone. Um, and I have experience building as well um landscaping <laughs> uh love landscaping did that for about four years still interested in that so yeah i'm kind of all over the map but uh, uh art as well um have done art for a long time so yeah it's it's all over and for looking at your website and reading your articles um gave me a new way of seeing astrology, because when when I think about astrology, I think about the cosmos and the stars. However, the way that you approach astrology, and maybe the way astrologers approach astrology, uh, is very much tied to the Earth and what's in the Earth. And so, I'm I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the connection between the stars and the Earth. And then we'll get into how you became interested in astrology. Yeah, the um, the basic premise of astrology is that there are things that are happening up, up there and there are things that are happening down here on Earth and that there's some kind of correlation or connection that is meaningful between those two things. And um, there are two different kinds of systems in astrology. There's what's called the tropical system and the sidereal system. And the sidereal system of astrology uh, tracks planets based on their, their positions in constellations. The tropical system, which is the system that most people are going to encounter in like media and the mainstream, is going to be um, an astrology that's not based on constellations that actually doesn't really use the stars. Stars can be used in different ways um, but they're not used as a way to track planets and understand where where the planets are in space. Um, that has more to do with our position here on Earth. So tropical astrology is, uh, sidereal is also Earth-based, but tropical astrology is, is primarily understanding where things are in space relative to our feet on the ground here on Earth. And where do things appear to be from our perspective here on earth a lot of it has to do with the cardinal directions um, and whether something's rising um, or setting so so how did you first get interested in astrology um i remember finding it at a grocery store when i was like maybe 10 or 11 years old and uh it was way over my head. I had no idea. It was just a simple wall calendar, but it was way over my head. Um, and then I kind of kept finding it in like Barnes and Noble bookstores. 
but it wasn't until, and it was always something that sort of attracted me and pulled me, and I was interested in, in it, and was never something that was part of the family. Uh, um, but yeah, it wasn't until I was about 16 that I had someone, a professional astrologer, read my chart. So she read the positions of the planets the moment that I was born. And that has had a very profound impact on me, uh, extremely affirming and validating uh, in just in, in ways that were really necessary at the time and like for my life overall that, that are still necessary. Uh, so from there, it kind of evolved in me finding books and um, connecting with other astrologers. So uh, it's had a very varied kind of place in my life. And the more that I study astrology and the more that I study my own chart, the more that I understand the sort of place that astrology functions best in my life, which is actually quite private. Um, there are some people for whom astrology is more of a public-facing thing. And I tried that, but it's very inauthentic for me in a certain way, like being in the media and the mainstream or even putting out material like isn't really, um, you know, an intention or goal of mine. Uh, so that has also been a very like, um, you know, a process of the past like 20 years exploring it so there's always I feel like there's something that always is percolating or or there like that astrology speaks to mm -hmm. forgive my ignorance uh if this is um if this is a, a novice question but I see that you've had a focus in your work on Hellenistic astrology and is is what is the reason for that? And also, how is Hellenistic astrology positioned within other uh, types or movements within astrology globally? Yeah, there are different types and movements of astrology within the world, for sure. And there have been since astrology has been around, which has been for at least like three millennia um, and going back probably even further. Um Although the evidence is not very conclusive, but that, you know, our oldest evidence isn't going to probably be the first evidence of it, if that makes sense. Um, the astrology that most people are going to encounter today has its roots in ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, the ancient Middle East, and a little bit of um, the ancient people of the Indus Valley. So, um, uh, or is I going with that? Uh, the form of astrology that is Hellenistic is basically born out of the cultural swirl that was happening around the late centuries BC, 500 to 200-ish, uh, around the time of Alexander the Great, when there was Greek occupation in Egypt, and you have sort of a cultural melting pot. And astrology was Hellenistic astrology, Hellenistic meaning Greek uh but really having its roots in um, African and Asian uh, wisdom traditions and timekeeping methods. Um, Hellenistic astrology was born out of that moment. And the reason for me studying that is because there's been a resurgence in Hellenistic astrology in the English-speaking world for the first time ever. Uh, there have been English translations of, of ancient Greek texts, ancient Latin texts, uh, the access of which people haven't really had since maybe, I don't even really know when these texts were being circulated or were available. Um, many of them have been, they're either like buried in piles of sand, literally, or they're in the basements of monasteries, or they're in the Vatican, or, um, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they haven't been accessible. And it, ironically, it's uh, academia that has been bringing astrology back into um, study after they kind of kicked astrology out when the sun was deemed the you know center of the solar system. And um, so for 500 years, um, 
those texts have not been really accessible probably for about 500 years, three to 500. And um, I, uh, there's a woman named Demetra George, and I study with her. Um, doing a certification program with her in Hellenistic astrology. She has translated texts. She's come up with a whole, um, you know, she's been a major player in the revivification of ancient astrology. So most of what people are going to encounter um, in the media is not ancient astrology, even though it has its roots there. Most of what people encounter is going to be some iteration or version of modern psychological astrology, which had its own, you know, that's like one channel, and then it kind of branches out, and you have all these different different schools of thought. So, yeah. Why do you think there's a, a resurgence of interest or a return of interest uh, in this area? Um, I think it's extremely exciting for astrologers because it uh, is feels like going back to the roots of something that astrologers, if you're if you're an astrologer and you are compelled by what you study and what you observe and what you experience, and um, you want to know. It often attracts people who are seeking, looking for answers, uh, looking for understanding, trying to make sense of the world, which we all do, and, and we do it in different ways. And astrologers use astrology. Uh, and, you know, you, you want to go deeper. So I think a lot of astrologers want to learn what those ancient texts were. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... It seems that this is a recurring theme uh, across many different disciplines where uh, sort of this scientific method, scientific approach um, that we have lived in um, for, for several hundred years has left us without meaning in some way. And so people seem to be turning back to more ancient practices or literature or approaches to understanding existence. Do you think that this is part of that trend? Yeah, I do. And I think that has, I think modern astrology also is part of, part of that included in that. And um, there's a really great work by uh, Richard Tarnas who is a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And um, his, his book, his, I think it was his second text called Cosmos and Psyche, talks a lot about the empowerment of the human ego um, out of like Cartesian science, out of um, the um, sun being the center of the solar system and that, that being a, an agreed upon model of, this, of the solar system um, really was like the last nail in the coffin for astrology in particular. Uh, so, yeah, I think there, I think there is, can be, if you don't, you know, um, like this is my, I just finished my first semester at Bard and I did some, I did a class, philosophy class, and we read, uh, it was ancient Greek philosophy class, we read the symposium and um, I'd never read it before. I never really read any ancient philosophy apart from what I'd find from studying astrology. And I was so um, impressed by how modern and and like almost progressive this text sounded that was written like 2,500 years ago. Uh, that was so stunning to me. And um, it's like so much has changed from now, up from then to now, uh, technologically in terms of government. But there's still so much that we still deal with as human beings, and in certain ways we really have not changed or developed very much. And so, yeah, I think because of technology and science, industrialization, urbanization, there's only there's a limit, I think, to how much a human being can actually be disconnected from... I believe it's a connection to nature, um, to natural spaces. And... And I think being disconnected from that causes a lot of malaise.
and confusion in people's hearts and minds. So that's my opinion. <laughs> I think we certainly see that with pilgrimages where people, I mean, many of the pilgrimages that are uh, beginning to flourish are those that uh, are in nature. There, there's some natural element and certainly people who've lived in, in, in urban environments are, are connecting or reconnecting with nature in, an, in a new and meaningful way. And it's happening uh, through pilgrimage journeys. Uh, I, I am, I'm wondering about, uh, I was super fascinated to learn about this 1967 discovery in France. And I'm hoping that you can talk about the, uh, let's see, the tablets that were discovered in a well. Uh, this is an area of France that I'm very interested in. And so when I dug a little bit deeper into this um, archeological find and what it meant, I, have so many thoughts about that, but um, I was unaware of this discovery. And so I'm, I would like for you to just talk a little bit about what the discovery is and then tying it to your own work and also the importance of this, these tangible tablets. Um, it, I think uh, it's important um, for, I guess, to, to place a, to place people and practices in a particular location is significant. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, what was found at Grand in, in northeast France uh, at, at the bottom of this well speaks to um, the extent of the of Egyptian was like Egyptian wisdom traditions and timekeeping methods. Uh, but also what we were speaking of before the the astrology that was born out of the the um, the Ptolemaic Empire after Alexander the Great conquered the known world. Um, so, yes, and they're at this site. So this site in ground, there's a, a lot that can be said about this site. And um, I've never been there. I'll preface it with that. I've never actually visited. Unfortunately, I would love to go. Um, but I've read a lot about it. And the tablets of Grand, which are two, basically two identical um, folding ivory diptychs that were found in fragments at the bottom of a buried well, um, which were fragmented because it's believed that they were intentionally destroyed in about 170 AD. And their tablets, which have inscribed on them in the center, uh, they're like square sort of folding tablets. And in the middle is a uh, Selene and Helios, which are the moon and the sun. And then a ring outside of that, you have the 12 zodiac signs. And then in another ring outside of that, you have what are called the Egyptian decans, which is a division of 36, the sky uh, division of 36. And those are like deities. Uh, and that's really, I think, as far as I know, the only evidence at this site that indicates anything like overtly pagan. Um, it's a really strong pagan suggestion. <laughs> uh, the site is essentially known for being uh, a healing site in the Roman world. It was built by Roman culture but had carried or inherited a lot of Greek tradition, um, pagan tradition, which was still being practiced in the Roman Empire uh, until Christianity became the, the um, official religion. So you have, um, you know, there would have been a, a, a statue outside of the, the, there's basically a six-walled enclosure of the sanctuary, and outside of the eastern wall, which is the entrance to the sanctuary, there would have been a, a statue of Atlas, who was a Greek titan, who would have carried the, um, he was condemned to carry the uh, celestial sphere. And uh, there, so there's already this sort of connection with the, the cosmos there at the site based on that. And the um, sanctuary was known as the Sanctuary of a Thousand Wells, and over 300 wells have been discovered there. So there's a lot of subterranean cavernous, it's called karst topography, there's a lot of subterranean water there. 
um, that's natural, but was also carved by the Romans and was tapped for the thermal baths that were there. There were about, I think, four of them. Um, and the baths were part of a ritual type of purification um, in the sanctuary. There's also a very large garden that was in the sanctuary. And just outside the sanctuary, there's a large amphitheater that the uh, capacity was around 17,000 people. And the, the, whole, the whole site of the sanctuary, which is like a circular enclosure uh, containing both the amphitheater and the sanctuary, um, the walled enclosure, is somewhere around like 140 acres. So the size of that and the size of the amphitheater and the size of the walls of the sanctuary, uh, which can go up to like six or seven stories high, uh, speak to the, the vitality of the space and also the frequency of visitations there. So this was a very known site in, in the Roman world, ancient world. And uh, the water was given the, the, was basically under the patronage of the Greek god Apollo who was the god of divination and medicine. Um, formerly, the water was under the patronage of the god Granus, which is the local, the original god of that, of that place. The same, same type of god, god of divination and medicine. Um, so that's kind of like the layout, basically, of that whole, of that site. And again, there's a lot more that can be said about that. But yeah, the tablets were found there, and I can speak more to that, but... Oh. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the tablets, but just as a short diversion and a, just an interesting tie to the, the, the current work that I'm working on uh, is related to pilgrimages to the Western Front of World War I, which this site is um, a site at the Western Front. And interestingly, the other tie is that there is a town outside, uh, it, a short distance, I think it's a, less than 10 kilometers away, called Nev Chateau, uh, where the Yankee division, uh, which was the division of all of the National Guard um, units from New England, where they first went to train. And then there was also a large Red Cross hospital there, which I think is interesting in tying this like healing piece uh, back to this specific location. And I haven't had a lot of time to really dig in to understand, you know, why the, the hospital location was selected, but it's just interesting in thinking about one, the, the water sources, um, and two, this being a place of healing in the midst of a world war. Um, so, and just what that means, and also what it means for people who are now making pilgrimages back there, you know, looking at how they are also interacting with the site at Grand as they are going back to, you know, in, in many ways, look at family healing or uh, looking at healing from war trauma and trying to, to kind of reconceptualize this as a peaceful place. Mm. Wow. So, I, I had no idea about that. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I'd love to chat probably more out from <laughs> when we're not in the middle of this podcast episode, but I think there's a lot there to explore and just the the actual energy of the site itself uh, is probably quite significant. Um, but going back to the tablets, um, can you talk a little bit more about the the detail the the stones um, that are because the the tablets have stones, right? different precious gemstones? Right. Um, so the, no stones, no precious stones were found at Grand. So that's curious, and I, I'm, it's like frustrating too at the same time, because uh, that was a known use of the boards, was to put, to place semi-precious stones on, the, on them. Um, and uh, there's literary evidence of that too from the Alexander Romance, uh, where this, uh, I think it was one of the last Egyptian kings, Nectanebo, he was known as a magician and an, and an astrologer, comes to Queen Olympias, who asks him about divination, and their conversation eventually sort of becomes an astrological consultation for her. And so he pulls out his, and from the quote, of, from the Alexander Romance. It's also an ivory diptych uh, made of gold as well. And he places um, different kinds of 
stones upon the board for the positions of the planets of Queen Olympias when she was born. And he foretells her that she will bear uh, a great son, who is Alexander. Um, and uh, so we have that literary evidence, as well as uh, thousands of gemstones that have been cataloged, that have are inscribed with in, um, incantations or pictures of deities or prayers, and... Yeah, so it, there's no doubt that those boards were used with stones. They weren't just decorative boards. Well, I'm even thinking about um, uh, the ancient Jewish, the high priests who wore the breastplates with the stones, and they were used for also divination. Uh, so I'm uh, imagining that there's some link um, with that as well. That's interesting, and uh, I didn't know about that. The... Um, the, I guess you could say like supernatural or oracular power ascribed to stones definitely goes, has very clear roots in um, the ancient Babylonian Mesopotamian people uh, where there are cuneiform tablets giving recipes for stones for warding off evil spirits or things like that. And um, from their perspective, the ancient people, for based on the tablets, the idea is that the stones have an, a natural power within themselves. And um, they impart that, you know, upon the wearer or... Do the stones themselves have the energy or is it the the does it require a human to speak or to write uh, or to connect language in some way to the stone that gives it the energy i guess there are different perspectives on that and the an ancient mesopotamian would say no it's because the stars it's because the rocks come from the stars and that's what gives them their div, their divine power um and so they're already divine there are they already have particular energies and powers um a neoplatonist uh or you know s someone who's involved in um astrological magic or alchemy would be infusing stones with suffumigations and prayers and incantations in order to impart some kind of e effect particularly upon the stone and yeah i mean it could go both ways I think the the original uh, pilgrimage sites globally, many of them were large rock formations or certainly uh, uh, natural landscapes that had some type of energy, whether that's a grove of trees or, um, as I said, a large rock or stone or mountain. So I think that, I mean, we see this all over the world that that there are natural um, sacred natural sites that have some type of energy, sort you know, water sources uh, that wells are built on top of that then some type of temple is built on top of and then a church is built on top of. So, I mean, we can trace that certainly throughout history. Uh, and, and your work, I guess, in, in the uh, sort of North Africa, Mediterranean, Middle East, Near East, sort of is the epicenter of a lot of uh, a lot of what we know about this type of spirituality be because of the written traditions there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so when when you first or sort of evolved into where you are now in your study um, of astrology. Did you feel drawn to a particular area? Um, I mean, obviously, the the ancient Greek world um, it, it figures prominently, but are there other areas that you um, feel drawn to from a from like a uh, geographic pole? Oh, um, from a geographic pole. Well, I've I've always been fascinated by ancient Egypt and the pyramids and the temples there um, and the 
the artwork from ancient Mesopotamia is some of my favorite, you know, things to just look at. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think rec a recent, or in the past few years, recent idea is uh, an interest in building, um, building sacred spaces and a reviving of temple culture, um, which the United States doesn't really, I mean, we have churches, but not really like temples. I mean, there are temples for other religions, but there are no real sacred spaces that are, um, that are, you know, dedicated to, say, Jupiter, or Venus, or the moon, or the sun. So, yeah. So you haven't, uh, is your interest in advocating that uh, these types of temples should exist, or your interest is in helping to build them or bring awareness? Yeah. And so in your, what would your dream temple be? I haven't even thought of that. I mean, I thought of like, maybe, uh, you know, it would definitely have to be a benefic, uh, which in astrology, in ancient astrology, there are two benefics, planets that are uh, benevolent, and two malefics, planets that are malevolent. And the two benefics are Jupiter and Venus. Um, and... Um, yeah, a temple to the moon or a temple to the sun would also sound like amazing. It would definitely be built out of the earth, built out of stone, and have uh, you know sympathetic materials relative to the planet because there's a doctrine of planetary sympathies where everything um, everything kind of exists on a certain chain of sympathy, meaning that. Um, Mars is like the liver, is like iron, is like blood, is like swords, that sort of thing. They're related. And um, copper is usually related to Venus, tin to Jupiter, gold to the sun, things like that. So it'd have, you know, incorporate that as well. And what about practices? Um, I don't know. I mean, that starts to get into a little more um, almost like too... Um, I, I wouldn't want to like designate anything necessarily uh, other than maybe like some kind of plaque or um, ancient uh, excerpt or uh, for people to reflect on in the space. It'd probably be a space of reflection upon themes of whatever planet it's dedicated to. It is interesting. I mean, we, this idea that we don't have, we don't have sacred spaces in the U.S. that are tied to some type of historical lineage. Uh, and, and I've thought a lot about this and kind of come back to the the natural world for us. I mean, many, when the national park system even was created, uh, many people took pilgrimages. They made pilgrimages. They called them that to to national parks like Yellowstone National Park, um, where I grew up in Wyoming. That so so those places became the sacred sites in many ways. And then of course we have a long history of Protestantism, uh, and so the churches, but the churches themselves aren't necessarily sacred sites that people make pilgrimages to or or find that type of connection in. Um, certainly the Catholic churches in many places in the U.S. are the, are those sites, but it is interesting, uh, the, this idea about uh, where, where do Americans go to really connect with a long tradition of, of community, of people who have um, practiced in, in a certain way. That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I just as you were talking about, um, you know, how people don't really go to church as a pilgrimage, I, uh, I um, you know, 100% agree with that. And it's um, in the framework of astrology, the church is a, I mean, the church is a 
sacred space and it's a space where um i mean it's not pagan so i can't i can't really say this but it's like the priest is performing a certain kind of metaphysical spiritual transformative process and um that kind of space is a place where people do take a pilgrimage to so if you were like really wanted to be like an intense Christian or something, you could sort of take that on and be like, okay, I'm taking this pilgrimage to this site and I'm going to be immersed in this metaphysical, spiritual, um, you know, container and emerge from it with a vision of clarity or something like that. And no, people don't do that. We don't really have anything that's like that. I don't, that I'm aware of um, in the United States and the youth of the country is part of that as well. Uh, when you think about pilgrimage, I mean, is this a word that you have considered before? Is it something that you had an awareness of? It is, um, and it's. It, it was not. I mean, probably within the past year was or year and a half was a word that I started look. You know, coming in and thinking about. Um, but it's, it's not really a word that I associate with astrology, to be, to be frank. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I'm curious what you think that. Uh, the word pilgrim, you know, can be pilgrimage can be, um, is, is mostly used in a Christian context and you can use the word to describe a sacred travel, but I, there are different ways that people can go about using that, that phrase or that terminology and talking about what is actually going on. Um, so yeah. Um, it, it definitely has has evolved um, into being uh, a Christian word, uh, and particularly Catholic uh, Christian word, um, because pilgrimages were banned during the Protestant Reformation. So people did not, even though they may have made journeys, they were forbidden in terms of um, what they formerly meant. Um, I am curious if, so people certainly go to places uh, that have astrological significance. I'm even thinking of Stonehenge. Um, would you consider that a pilgrimage site? Would you consider that astrologically significant, first of all? <laughs> I Initially, my, in my, my, my first, um, my first was no, and then I thought, well, it deals with the solstices and the equinoxes, so yes. Okay, so if if you take a place uh, that people go to, um, maybe even the site, maybe even Grand, right? That they're going to see the well, or they're going to the thermal springs, or. Um, but but I but specific to uh, people who practice astrology, so not not tourists who are going to see the amphitheater. What would that type of travel be called for someone who practices astrology? I don't know, um, because an astrologer or someone who practices astrology is is so so sort of overly aware or maybe thinking about how one defines what astrology is. And even for me to say that, uh, okay, so it deals with solstices and equinoxes, that site, so so yes, we can say it's astrological. Some astrologers would not agree with that at all. And they say, no, it's not astrological at all. Um, and that's easy to argue against it. Um, so I don't really know. I mean, I think they would they would call it probably a pilgrimage. Um, if there was a place that you, that you, you sense you could go and it would be maybe the most significant 
uh, spiritual, existential, meaningful experience for you, where would that place be? Probably here in New England, um, somewhere north. Uh, I mean, even like the woods in my where I grew up, New Hampshire, um, but Vermont as well, um, and kind of around the border of Canada. Uh, for me, is very the land there feel is very like powerful for me. Is your is your family French French Canadian? My mom's side is yeah. Okay, so do you think that plays a role uh, in where in yeah? So you yeah. you feel personally connected to this type of landscape or or the specificity of the land there? Absolutely, and I have felt that ever since I was a kid. Before I even knew what like French Canadian meant or that I was. Um, the, yeah, the land just was really, for me, charged and just felt so vibrant, especially in Vermont, um, more so than New Hampshire where I grew up. So, yeah, I think um, that a person's genetics or something is happening, something's being turned on and activated in the locale where their ancestors have been for a long time. I totally agree. There, I mean, there is something that is almost uh, cannot be explained rationally um, in being in a space where one's ancestors ha have passed through or or that lived or died or worked uh, there's something uh it, it's beyond comprehension for me and i wonder is it dna is it part of like a collective consciousness that we tap into um in some way do you have a sense of this too? No, I, I think I, it's the, I, I kind of um, resonate with this sort of questioning, you know, it's the same for me. And I think, uh, I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think that the land can hold memory um, and more memory is there tied to land and, um, I think there's something, something beyond like our what we sort of experience in our month with our mundane senses um, that we're just always in wherever we are and we can tap into, um, and I think becomes especially prominent uh, when you're around like where your ancestors have been. Yeah. Well, I think there's a strong connection there too with astrology uh because the sense that all of uh, the 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 planet has existed before us and it will exist after us and people were guided by uh the the same um entities beings before us and we can also draw a direction from that that's I think there's a sense of comfort in that. Mm. Mm. And that also ties to the family lineage as well, uh, as particularly, you know, if the family had a certain practice uh, of drawing from um, astrological practices, and then it's like we become the next iteration of a long uh, cycle of people doing the same thing. For sure. And then it also becomes like easier. <laughs> <laughs> because it's handed down and uh, you don't really have to go digging for it and do a lot of the the elbow work and legwork to find those things. It's There's something to be said about not only maybe like literature or um, oral stories being, being there, being present around that, but being immersed in the mindset and the framework of thinking around that that is very impactful for like, you know, younger minds and future generations. So yeah, it's definitely has like a um, momentous sort of power to it. Do you, do you, do people come to you um, to have their own um, charts read or do you consider yourself a practitioner in that way? I'm open to it. Uh, I don't seek it out and I don't, really invite people necessarily um but 
people know that I do it. And if people ask, then I make myself available for it because I'm very happy to do it. And I'm very excited to talk about it with a person. Um, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of responsibility that an astrologer holds that the person coming to an astrologer is completely unaware of. And oftentimes, like, a person who comes to an astrologer just sort of has in their mind, uh, you know, just read my chart. And it doesn't really work well like that. Um, the person needs to understand why they're coming to an astrologer, and they need to be comfortable with whatever that is. Um, and so if they're not comfortable with admitting something or that they're struggling with something because that's usually why people go to an astrologer and if you're not you're just looking to have you know an entertainment or magic session rabbit pulled out of a hat which is not what I do some astrologers do um but if you're not comfortable with that then you shouldn't be asking you shouldn't seek an astrologer in my opinion um because it's it's real and there's a lot of responsibility that an astrologer holds with the kind of information uh, and potentialities latent within a, a birth chart and before, you know, another very vibrant, like, you know, living human being before them. And, um, a lot of damage has been done by astrologers in the past and, uh, you know, first do no harm. So. I'm a person who is, which I'll, I'll ask you about later, but, um, is on the cusp of two signs. Um, can you give any insight about uh, about what that means? Just just the cusp part. Mm, it's too too little of information to say anything. Well played. <laughs> no, there needs to be more, and uh, the the only thing that it really means is that you know you were born. Some astrologers be more. This is not an an ancient. Um, you know, perspective, a more modern perspective would say that you're transitioning from one kind of phase to another. Um, but even that's like so incredibly vague that it's like, what does that even mean? Um, and that's often the, the, the bone to pick that I have with, uh, with modern astrologers that they often are saying things that I have no idea what they're even really saying much, you know? Um, and it's like just too, too vague. It's not, there's not enough there for it to be meaningful for the other person. Um, and that can actually be dangerous. Yeah. So with all of the, the different parts of you that are coming together, um, do you have a sense of the integration piece for yourself? Uh, what does this look like is, I mean, you obviously are embodying, so there's that piece that's a common thread, but are you, uh, do, what are, how do you envision the integration mm, of like all these various things? Yeah. Um, my, I would say that my, the integration would be through some sort of earth-based practice, whether it's growing food or building, um, or planting, um, you know, homesteading, that I think is like the foundation and that needs to be, that needs to be my lifestyle. Um, and the, the astrology pieces is, is personal. It's highly, very personal. Um, it's something that I do privately sort of behind, behind closed doors and, um, you know, something that perhaps maybe when I'm like, you know, in my fifties or sixties or something, it'll open up to like an audience, but I, you know, I'm not really intending for anything like that. So yeah, I envision as well, um, a kind of residency program for astrologers because, uh, nothing like that exists and, um, studying astrology is incredibly, um, uh, isolating and it's very difficult because, and despite the difficulties of like, I mean, astrology has subsisted for 500 years without any kind of institutional support after it was kicked out of academia, the academy. So uh, there's no question that astrology will continue and that it has no, you know, no trouble uh, treading water. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should just sort of 
you know, let it. Um, so I would love to create some kind of uh, kind of like a low key um, residency program where astrologers can come um, stay like on my land that I am going to have at some point <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, live simply closer to nature and have the time to study and maybe have multiple people where some kind of cross mentorship can happen um, and to develop, you know, community in that way because there's nothing like that that exists and uh, I think it's important so with all, yes I, and I'm the community piece is interesting because as you were just talking I I well as we've been talking um I think it's people who have taken a non-linear path in life uh well I've labeled this the linear lie uh in in the United States like that this is what you do at this stage and then this happens and then this happens and it's actually uh all just a ruse I mean that 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 isn't how life is and yet we I mean how many mental health issues you know uh, result from this idea that we have this linear path. And I think people like you point to point us in a different direction where you've clearly followed your, your passions. And also I can imagine that you've taken a very lonely path, um, at times. So what has that been like for you? Um, I mean, I've, I've always been around people, but, um, you know, in the sense that, yeah, I'm not like going to college right out of high school, getting a degree and jumping into a job and buying a house, having, you know, a spouse and having kids like that's just not for me. And, um, yeah, that's, um, that's, it's tough because that's the way a lot of systems and things have been built up for. So it's a lot easier if you want to go that way. Um, but it's much more difficult on my mind and on my heart to do something like that. Um, it's also incredibly like, um, like devoid of anything like natural. (laughs) Uh, and for me, I mean, I just want to be like buried up to my neck in the ground and just sit there for like three days, you know, uh, so yeah, it's been lonely, um, and trying to like piece things together and from one thing to the next. Uh, but I think being in a more, um, structured system now and at a college and studying, which has been its own sort of like putting on an itchy, uh, wool sweater and like adjusting to a different kind of way and schedule, um, has actually been the most, uh, not the most fulfilling, but the most um, kind of integrating of everything and has opened up a lot already in terms of going forward less lonely, I guess, um, and more integrated. So yeah, it's there's something to be said for those systems too that I was reluctant to, to, to join. <laughs> well, it, I would have to imagine that there's something in your chart that has validated the path you've taken and you've been able to rely on that as one validation, but also some taking some comfort in that. Yeah. Interesting. I never really thought of that. Um, yeah, there's a, right. Yeah. It, uh, there is, yeah, this, it's, uh, it's sort of what's called in astrology is an aversion and it's, it's overly technical and I won't really get into it, but it's basically a blind spot. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've like always had to work with this certain kind of major blind spot and, uh, dealing with that has been like a humongous learning process. And it's, um, also a sense of, you know, yeah, it's been a sense of comfort too. So it's interesting two-sided coin. (laughs) are there any other uh connections that i haven't made um that you would like to make between astrology and pilgrimage or sites uh that have significance for astrologers and pilgrimage um 
There are sites throughout, like the Mediterranean, and uh, of course in Egypt and um, the Middle East, that are that are significant in terms of like cos- cultural cosmology, and sometimes astrology. Uh, you know, um, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think so. I think we kind of hit it all. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, well, if people want to learn more about you uh, as a person or your work or Hellenistic astrology, uh, where can we find you? They can go to my website, which is brothermoonhealing.com. Um, I've been wanting to change that domain name for like forever, uh, <laughs> but that's the domain name right now. It may change. Um, but yeah, if they want to learn more about me, that's there, brothermoonhealing.com. Yeah. And is your email address on the site? You have a contact me link, right? I think so. Yeah, it should be there. Um, I'll double check. And if it's not, I can add that. But um, yeah, you can see stuff that I've been up to and um, my exam work from the certification program I'm doing with Demetra George read, you know, I leave that open for people. So the uh, online, um, I guess you could call it an exhibition of your um, uh, what am I trying to say? The um, astrological signs. What are they called? Sorry, the zodiac signs is really interesting. I was studying them and I actually would like to see them not on my computer screen because, uh, you know, just looking. So I think I'm going to print them. But what was the inspiration behind that? Oh, huge. Um, that was coming from a modern. Um, inspiration from a modern astrologer named Dane Rudyar, who is hugely influential in um, 20th century psychological astrology, French philosopher, composer, uh, musician, um, wrote extensively on astrology, uh, also came from, uh, so his conception of the zodiac, which is a little different from the ancient conception of it. Um, much more like thematic and pers- sort of like a journey of a person or um, as well as drawings, just doodle- doodling drawings. And um, there's an old this medieval quote called for in order for a branch's roots to reach to heaven, its roots must, sorry, for a branch's, tree's branches to reach to heaven, its roots must reach to hell. Um, and... I developed this drawing of the cross, you know, straight up, straight across, cross, um, that is tied to the horoscope and principles of birth charts. So from that, I wanted to see how this idea that comes from Dane Rudyar about power and consciousness, where a horizontal line represents consciousness and a vertical line represents power. And the reason for that is that the horizon separates what's light from what's dark. So consciousness, what you're aware of, what you're not aware of. And then the vertical line being power um, coming from the idea that there are planets that are gaining power when they're ascending, and then they're losing power when they're falling, and that that vertical line separates those which rise and those which fall. And the combination of the consciousness and power, that intersection is where life happens. So uh, this is one of his like main theories, I guess. And I wanted to see how the Zodiac would express themselves through that intersection. And um, there's a lot of meditation and using line and shape and darkness and lightness, which is another thing that he uses in his concept of the Zodiac is light and dark, um, day and night. And, um, yeah, 
So it's kind of complicated. There's a lot that I could say about that too. I think there's a podcast on my website that has a, an interview about that. People wanted to hear you know, more in length about that. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I mean, I'm looking at the images now and I hope that listeners will go to brothermoonhealing.com and check this, uh, check out this project because it's, it's certainly, I mean, I, just looking at it, I, I, I just want to keep meditating on the images actually. Um, so this is really beautifully done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you should print them out and like line them up just straight across on a wall. And aha, so the line, the the lines are one line, right across. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I'm I'm looking at. It. I guess that's possible actually to line up the the horizontal lines so that they're it's all even. The, yeah, so that they're all even, right? They're yeah, you know, not necessarily touching, but yeah, even. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, Sam, thank you so much for talking uh, with me today. It's very fascinating. You are a very fascinating person with all kinds of really cool experience. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that with, with me and with people listening. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.